Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Pastor Keith Crosby of Hillside Church. We need to be careful with our teaching, careful with our doctrine, and that's what Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 3 through 11. He nails down the importance of doctrine before even discussing the gospel, before even discussing worship, before even discussing leadership, how to care for widows, elders, all those sorts of things. And this kind of teaching that we just saw in this quotation is the kind of teaching that God had Paul speak against in the pastoral epistles. I can see the promised land Though there's pain within the plan There is victory in the end Your love is my battle cry The anthem for all my life Every dragon will fall The mountains will move Every chain of the past You've broken into All the fear of the lies We're singing the truth That nothing is impossible With you Hello and welcome to today's edition of the Grace to Live radio broadcast with Keith Crosby, Senior Pastor of Hillside Church in San Jose, California. I think that most of us listening today would agree that church matters. But what about the matters of church? Are the various internal mechanisms important? And is the way we do church something that should be changing with the times? On today's edition of Grace to Live... We begin a new series of messages entitled Church Matters, Building and Operating a Church According to the Master's Plan. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with us today to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 1 as we hear part one of a message that Keith has entitled, Believe It or Not. Now here's Pastor Keith with today's study. And now we return to our series entitled Church Matters on the Pastoral Epistles. In this series, what we've been trying to uh, ask and answer are really some very simple questions. What makes a good church and what makes a church good? And to answer that question, we looked to the pastoral epistles. What are they? That's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Paul wrote these letters under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to provide us with timeless truths and principles for all things church. In the pastoral epistles, we have a blueprint for doing church God's way. In fact, the thesis statement of the pastoral epistles is this. Paul writes to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the pillar, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul writes to us, he writes to Timothy, in Ephesus and to Titus in Crete about church matters, about how to do church. 
And we are now beginning our fourth message on this. And if you haven't been with us before, you may want to go back to our website and listen to the previous three messages. But today, uh, we go back into the pastoral epistles because we want to do church God's way. Now, in this installment, it's entitled Church Matters, Doctrine Matters. It's actually part two of a sermon that we began before the crisis. And it's our fourth sermon in the series. And what we've been studying is is that there is a right way and a wrong way to do church. And so as Paul writes this epistle, he begins with a typical greeting, uh, Paul, uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the command of God our Savior, and Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, my true son in the faith. And from that greeting, the first thing that he jumps on is doctrine. Doctrine. When you think about it, that seems kind of odd. What about structure? What about this? What about that? But when you really, really think about it, if you get your doctrine, your teaching right, everything else falls into place. So he starts off with a discussion of doctrine in chapter 1. Then he talks about worship guided by that doctrine in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, picking leaders according to sound doctrine, good teaching, and on and on and on in chapters 4, 5, and beyond, uh, how, how this works. And so we're following that roadmap that he gives us. And this letter is a remedial letter. It's a corrective because the churches in Crete and the church in Ephesus had sort of gone awry. And so Paul has gone back to Ephesus and he has straightened things out and left Timothy there. And he's made sure that, that Titus is setting things in order in Crete. And right after the greeting, he jumps to this statement. Let me read this for you. It's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. What's going on here is Paul is addressing people who either through ignorance or arrogance were sort of making it up as they went along. They were teaching their own thing. They weren't teaching the word of God. And they were, they were creating fanciful stories and they were creating sort of these genealogies or family trees that really they were bending and, and stretching out of shape. And in so doing, they were creating more questions than they were answering. Then they get into trying to teach the law, and they don't know anything about the law. And so Paul is having to correct all this, and he sends Timothy to tell them to stop it. Because you see this in the church today, good people doing bad things for the so-called right reasons. And I'm sure that most of these people, not all of them, but most of them meant well, but they were just ignorant of what they spoke. And I'm going to talk about the ignorant and the arrogant as we move through this installment today but the truth of the matter is whether you're ignorant or arrogant false teaching is false teaching and it harms it hinders as Paul calls it the stewardship from God that is the advance of the kingdom it hinders the gospel ministry and the same types of problems that they were dealing with then we deal with today and let me give you an example of this you know there's an old saying that a half truth is a whole lie And even if you sort of play fast and loose with the facts for some good cause, you're really doing the wrong thing. And here's an example. Here's a tweet I read on uh, on Twitter, and it says this. 
profound. Jesus born out of wedlock, refugee to Egypt without papers, dirt poor in a cave in a slimy in a cave in a slimy food trough, born weak, he left none behind who believed. It's captivating, isn't it? Colorful? Kind of kind of creates this vivid image of Christ and everything. The trouble is it's ninety percent false. So what's wrong with this picture? Well, let me just pick the low-hanging fruit and limit our discussion to seven fallacies in that teaching right there, because that's what that is. This is a pastor, a preacher. This is a church leader, and he's saying things that aren't true. And in his mind, he's probably doing it for a good reason, but you know what? It's false teaching. So what's wrong with this picture? Let's take the first fallacy. Fallacy number one is Jesus was not born out of wedlock. In Matthew 1, 18 and 19, we understand that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's not, being, that's not an illegitimate birth. That's not a, a birth born out of fornication. It's not a, he wasn't conceived out of wedlock. He wasn't born out of wedlock. And Which brings us to our second fallacy. Joseph and Mary were married when Jesus was born. Under Jewish law, they were betrothed, and that is marriage before the wedding night. And in Matthew 1, 18 to 21, Joseph is referred to prior to Jesus' birth, as Mary's husband. And just to make sure that this well-intended gentleman didn't have a bad Bible translation, I checked, I checked several foreign language translations. I checked the original Greek, of course. I checked Spanish. I checked Russian. I checked German and Swedish. And all say husband. Joseph was their husband. Jesus was born into an intact family. And he wasn't born out of wedlock. Third fallacy is this. Mary and Joseph hadn't done anything wrong. The implication that he's born out of red, uh, wedlock suggests there was something untold about their relationship. But the bottom line in Matthew 1.19 and in Luke 1.34, they're both described as righteous in the sight of God. Which brings us to fallacy number four. Neither had had inappropriate contact with each other or anyone else prior to marriage. Matthew one twenty five makes it very clear that Mary was a virgin when Jesus was conceived in her by the Holy Spirit. She wasn't promiscuous. She wasn't sleeping around. And this whole born out of wedlock thing. You know, today when people are born out of wedlock, at least one person is engaged in sin there, right? Because they're having contact, sexual contact, intercourse before marriage. That's not what's going on here with the virgin birth. Which brings us to our fifth fallacy with this statement. Joseph and Mary did not enter Egypt without papers. Now, I know it sounds very romantic, particularly in the time in which we live with all the controversy around immigration and illegal immigration. But we forget, or maybe he forgot, that Egypt was a Roman province just like Syria or just like Israel. And the movement between these borders, there was nothing done illegally. The Bible makes that sufficiently clear in Luke 2, 1 through 5. Number six, Joseph and Mary weren't homeless. They weren't homeless. They were from Nazareth. She'd been living with her parents prior to her marriage. And the only reason that they're in Bethlehem is not because they're homeless. It's because they have obeyed the secular authorities and gone to register for the census. And so the idea that they had snuck across the border is just not true. You see that in Luke 2.6. Last and not least, Mary and Joseph were observant Jews. So what? Well, it's like this. 
the so-called slimy place that he was born. Understand this. I mean, they took him to the temple to be circumcised on the eighth day. They redeemed him as they do for the firstborn. And in Luke uh, 2.21, this is very clear. And for reasons of ceremonial cleanness or uncleanness, and also for reasons of infant mortality, they're not going to let him be born with the pigs or something like that. And so the idea, yeah, it was, it was a stable. They were sent to a stable. We get that. Was it a cave? Probably. But they're not going to allow a birth as good observant Jews in unsanitary, ceremonially unclean conditions. Because as the Bible says, they were righteous in the sight of God. They were observant Jews. Now all that made for a good story, profound Jesus born out of wedlock, refugee to Egypt without papers, dirt poor, born in a slimy cave, food trough. You know, but the bottom line is, it's just not true. And when you think about the fact that he was given gold, frankincense, and myrrh, uh, gold is, you know, pretty good gift for a young child. So why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because we need to be careful with our teaching, careful with our doctrine. And that's what Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 3 through 11. He nails down the importance of doctrine before even discussing the gospel, before even discussing worship, before even discussing leadership, how to care for widows, elders, all those sorts of things. And this kind of teaching that we just saw in this quotation is the kind of teaching that God had Paul speak against in the pastoral epistles. Again, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God, the administration from God, the kingdom of God, which is by faith. And that's why Paul repeats in 2 Timothy that same theme. Let me read it for you in 2 Timothy 2, 15 and 16. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly, did you catch that? Rightly handling the word of truth. Now look at verse 16. But, in contrast, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene, 2 Timothy 2, 15 and 16. Friends, we are not to ever, ever play fast and loose with the word of God, with the facts we're not to say things that God hasn't said. Proverbs 30, verse 5 warns about adding to or taking away from God's word, lest he rebuke you and you be proved to be a liar. And that's why we're into today's message. And today's message is Doctrine Matters. Its subtitle is Doctrine Divides and Worship Unites. And it's part four of our larger series on church matters. What makes a good church and what makes a church good? And the title I've chosen on purpose, Doctrine Divides and worship unites. Have you ever heard that saying before? Usually you hear that in a pejorative or a negative sense. I mean, is doctrine really such a big deal? I remember a YouTube video by a young man where he said he loved Jesus, but he hated the church. Or people say, I love, I love Christianity, but I hate doctrine. Or you hear all these kinds of things that sound good, but are really dumb. I don't know how else to say it. Would Jesus, did Jesus think that doctrine was a big deal? I mean, you remember those bracelets, what would Jesus do, WWJD? What would Jesus say? 
Is doctrine a big deal? Well, let's find out. Let's look to Jesus. So let me set this up for you. We're going to be looking in the Gospel of John. This is sort of a follow-up to our earlier message on uh, Doctrine Matters and 1 Timothy 3, uh, 1, 3, 3 through 11. But today we're going to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and see what he says about doctrine. And our, our passage is a very familiar account that people often look at and miss the whole point. And it's the story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman who comes to Christ and her whole village who does later on, or most of her village, many in her village. And so do you want to turn your Bibles to John chapter 4? We're going to begin in verse 7. So let me set this up for you. Jesus and his disciples are headed on a journey. They're, they're going through They're going through Samaria, which most good Jews would not do. Most good Jews would go around Samaria. But they're going through it because Jesus doesn't waste time. He doesn't waste motion, and he doesn't waste words. He had ministry to do, souls to redeem. And so they go into Samaria. They're hot, they're tired, they're thirsty, they're hungry. And so he sends his disciples into the nearby town to buy food. He waits for them at this well known as Jacob's well. And this Samaritan woman comes up and begins to draw water, and he speaks to her. And I want you to think of what we're going to be studying right now as sort of a five-act play. This is act one. We'll call it the instigation. Act one is the instigation. Jesus is going to instigate a conversation with her. Act one, the instigation. John 4, verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away, into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans, and the Samaritans returned the favor, of course. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And he goes on to say, and you'd never be thirsty again. Verse 15, she replies. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Ouch, I'm had to hurt. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now what's going on here? Essentially, Jesus is engaging her in a conversation. And whether she realizes it or not, her eternity is at stake here. He refers to his deity and to his identity. And she misses it. She doesn't get it. She's either not a student of the Bible. The Samaritans had the Pentateuch, at least. And they had the rest, much of the other uh, Hebrew Old Testament as well. And Jesus describes himself the way that God is described by the prophet Jeremiah as the well of living water, the spring of living water, of the, of the author of life, salvation. And so he sort of calls her out. He engages her in this conversation and uh, she's, you know, she's not comfortable. She's like, what are you doing talking to me? Jews and Samaritans don't talk. And he sort of brushes that aside and says, look, if you knew who I was and what I'm offering you, you would say, give it to me. 
Her not understanding him, she says, well, give me the water then so I don't have to come back here again. And so what's going to happen next is now that he's confronted her as somebody who's promiscuous, immoral, uh, living with a man unmarried, uh, uh, she's a little shocked. She realizes he must at least be a prophet. There's something supernatural going on here. And what she does is she begins to try to change the subject. Now, what you see here, too, and Jesus is very, uh, in some ways, humiliating address to her, is that it reminds us that sometimes the gospel is going to sting. The word of God is going to hurt before it heals. And so he is trying to show her that she needs to listen to him, and he's showing her also the depth and breadth of her sin. Now we go to Act 2, which we'll call The Conversation. You know, most people just think of this as a good story or a story about uh, patriotism, you know, and its evils or race relations or sectarianism. And you know what? They all miss the boat. That's not what this passage is about. It's about the deity of Christ, his messiahship, and it's about the importance of doctrine in worship in serving God. It's about doctrine. Jesus here in this passage, as you're going to see, is being very exclusive You know, he's got this unique love for the lost. In some ways, it's mysterious. And and this love can be tough sometimes. And it's tough here. And no doubt, his humiliating words about her promiscuity cut and stung. But he's doing this for her sake to get her attention. Now, watch this exchange play out. Watch this give and take. And think with me. Verse 20, she tries to turn the matter about... Well, this is what you say, this is what I believe, you believe what you believe, I believe what I believe, and we'll just call it a day. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you, that means you Jews, you all, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She's basically saying your people and my people differ on our approach to worship, but we both worship God. So she's actually getting into doctrine here. But she's getting it all wrong. She's tilting towards something that we call moral equivalency. This is what you do. This is what we do. Who's to say who's wrong? It's probably about the same. You see this a lot in our culture today. I'm reminded that she was postmodern before postmodern was cool. But how does Jesus respond to her? Does he say, oh, that's true. Who am I to say that you're wrong? Who are you to say that I'm wrong? Does he say that? Not a chance. Not, uh, not at all. He indicates that she's dead wrong. He's going to indicate that she's missing the forest for the trees. He's going to indicate that she doesn't even understand God. She doesn't understand the Bible. She doesn't understand the God of the Bible or the teaching and doctrine. And so first he deals with her focusing on the wrong things in verse 21. Jesus said to her, John 4, 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, ma'am, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now watch what he says next because this is critical. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. Now think about that. You worship what you don't know. You don't even know what you worship. You don't even know, you don't know God. You don't You don't understand what you say you believe. Now, maybe she's sincere, not good enough. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. So much for pluralism, right? So much for uh, your truth and my truth. You see, Jesus is using this to separate, to, to draw a line for her. Because doctrine does divide. 
It separates the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares, the true worshiper from the false worshiper, the saved from the lost. Doctrine does divide, and he is using this to try to get her to to focus on what is true and cling to it. Let's go on to Act 3 in this five-act play. Act 3 we call the insinuation. Jesus insinuates that their doctrine and consequently their understanding of God is unsound, it's unreliable, it's unstable, it's clueless, and it's useless to them. Pastor Keith Crosby with today's Grace to Live radio broadcast. We are so grateful that you've chosen to spend this time with us today here on the program. And if you have questions about today's show, or if you'd like to hear more messages from Pastor Keith, then I would encourage you to visit our website, hillsidechurch.org. There you can listen to past sermons and other content from Pastor Keith just by clicking the Sermon Archive tab. And you can also find links to Pastor Keith's blog, as well as the Out of My Mind podcast. The website is also a great place to connect with us here at Hillside. You can find information on our service times, ministry opportunities, and of course you can browse our calendar of upcoming events. Again, all this and much, much more can be found by visiting our website, hillsidechurch.org. Well, we hope that you'll join us again next time on Grace to Live. But until then, I'm your host, Kevin Reeves, and on behalf of Pastor Keith and everyone here at Hillside Church, it is our prayer that the Lord will richly bless you, and thanks for listening.